All right, you guys can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. That's where we'll be this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, a passage all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A little piece of history for you. On September 19th, 1961, this man, a guy named James Webb, the director of NASA, announced that the nation's new manned space flight center would be located in Clear Lake, Texas, just south of Houston. Now, to most of you, that is a completely forgettable insignificant piece of 1960s trivia. You don't care anything about it. But to me, it's very significant. And and here's why. My grandfather on my dad's side was in the space industry, and he worked in Alabama when this announcement was made. And after the space center was built in Houston, he moved his family, including my dad, to Clear Lake. And here's why it matters, because Clear Lake is adjacent to another little town called Webster, and Webster is where my mom grew up. So it was after they moved to Clear Lake that my dad, a freshman in college, met my mom and they began to date and got married and had me. So uh, that little piece of information is trivia to you, but it's very significant to me because if, if James Webb would not have picked Clear Lake, then my dad would have stayed in Alabama and married some Alabama girl and I would have never been born and, and that would have really been a bummer for me. So uh, really, really significant to me. And what we see in, in that event is, is, is a truth in history. There are so many events that have happened in the history of the human race, countless events that have happened in the history of the human race, and yet most of them are insignificant to us. Most of them are nothing more than a little bit of historical trivia to us because they have no ramifications upon our lives. And history without relevance is just trivia. If you cannot connect the dots between the historical event and your life, then it will, be ne- it will never be anything more than trivia to you. Well, this morning we're going to study a historical event, an event that happened 1980 years ago, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the event that we're going to look at this morning, the resurrection of Jesus. And, and for lack of time, I'm not going to spend much effort this morning trying to prove to you that the resurrection happened. I'm not going to talk this morning about the historicity of the resurrection. We're just going to take it for granted. We're going to assume that it really did happen. But if you want to study the evidence more, if you want to know Why is it that we believe that it's reasonable that Jesus really did rise from the dead almost 2,000 years ago? I've written an article outlining the evidence for you. Not just the biblical evidence, but the secular evidence. And I'll be posting that article on Facebook and Twitter this afternoon. So if you want to know why is it reasonable to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you can just follow me on Twitter. I'll send you that article. It's about five pages. You can read over that. It outlines the major evidence. If you're having a hard time believing that Jesus really did rise from the dead, if that just seems like a, a bit of an intellectual stretch to you, I encourage you to read through that article. And if you still have doubts, please come talk to me or another pastor here at Grace, we would love to talk with you. We'd love to walk you through the evidence and do the best we can to answer your doubts. So this morning, we're not going to look at the historicity of the resurrection. This morning, we are going to focus on the relevance of the resurrection. Why does it matter to us? 1980 years after the event, why does it matter to you that Jesus rose from the dead? What's the relevance of that event to your life? To answer that question, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15. 
Because in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has a lot to say about the relevance of the resurrection. He begins with the bare facts, just the facts of the gospel, the facts of what Jesus did almost 2,000 years ago. Look with me starting in verse 3. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So he just begins with the facts that Jesus died for us, for our sins, and then rose from the dead. But the second part of that gospel, the resurrection of Jesus, that was presenting a problem for the church in Corinth. You see, the idea of resurrection back in the first century was laughable to Greeks, to Gentiles. They, they found the concept of resurrection to be a joke, a, an absurdity to them. First of all, they had never seen anyone rise from the dead, so that made it seem kind of ridiculous. And second, they wondered, why would you want to be resurrected? Why would you want this body back after you die? This body is broken, it gets sick, it is weak, it feels pain, it is limited. Why would you want to get this body back? Actually, back in the first century, the Greek-speaking world, so most of the world, they called their bodies a tomb. It was a tomb for their spirit. It was a prison. They looked forward to death as that moment when your human spirit is liberated from the prison of your corpse. So for Gentiles in the first century, they thought resurrection was a joke. It was laughable. They, they found the concept of a resurrection to be ridiculous. You see that when Paul is speaking to Gentile philosophers in Acts 17. He's preaching the gospel to them. And he gets to that part about the resurrection. Here's what happens. Uh, Paul says to these Athenian philosophers, he's talking about Jesus and about God. He says that God is fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given proof to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. These Greek intellectuals, they, they mocked when they heard this idea of resurrection because the concept of resurrection was unpopular in the first century, just like it is today. We live in a modern scientific world, and the idea of resurrection seems kind of ridiculous in the world that we live in. You cannot uh, replicate the resurrection in a laboratory. We've never seen it in, in a lab, and, and science cannot, cannot prove the resurrection beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so in our society, many people doubt the resurrection. Actually, many people find it to be kind of ridiculous, kind of a, an absurd belief that we hold that a guy really did rise from the dead 2,000 years ago. So the resurrection is, is really, it's always been an unpopular belief. And when the church is faced with hostility from culture over a certain thing that we believe, what are many Christians tempted to do? Well, to compromise the truth. In some form or fashion, let's, let's compromise that unpopular belief. You see that all the time today. There's a group of, of scholars out there who call themselves Christians. They make up the Jesus Seminar. And the Jesus Seminar votes on whether verses in the Gospels are true or not. And it's probably no stretch to imagine. They, they have found the resurrection to not pass the bar. Resurrection couldn't have happened. Here's how one of their number, Marcus Borg, puts it. As a child, I took it for granted that Easter meant that Jesus literally rose from the dead. I now see Easter very differently. For me, it is irrelevant whether or not the tomb was empty. Whether Easter involves something remarkable happening to the physical body of Jesus is irrelevant. The resurrection is an unpopular belief. It's hard for our society to accept, and so we jettison it to make Christianity more palatable 
to the world. Well, that's exactly what was going on back in Corinth in the first century. The Corinthians found the resurrection to be hard to believe. It was hard to believe because it was such an unpopular idea in their society. And so believers in the Corinthian church began to doubt the resurrection. Some of them began to deny the resurrection. Some taught that it never happened. Others simply redefined the word resurrection. They, they made it not something that literally happened to Jesus. It was just a metaphor for the life that Jesus had. However they did it, what they were doing was denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's an unpopular belief, so they jettisoned it. And Paul was not okay with that. You haven't figured it out yet reading Paul. He, he took the resurrection of Jesus pretty seriously. It was really important to Paul. And so he takes this whole chapter to defend this belief in the resurrection of Jesus. And he begins with proof. He gives some historical evidence for the fact of the resurrection. You see that in verses 5 through 8. Read with me verses 5 through 8. Paul says, and he, that is Jesus, appeared to Cephas, that's actually another word for Peter, then to the twelve, after he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. That's what Paul means by death, to have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all of the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Here's what Paul is saying. The resurrection of Jesus back in the first century that was something you could actually verify. You could go ask witnesses. There were over 500 people who saw the resurrected Jesus. And at this point in history, most of them were still alive. So Paul is inviting the Corinthians, go ask them. Don't just take my word for it. Go ask the people who saw it. So Paul provides some proof for the resurrection, but most of the chapter is not about proof. It's about relevance. Paul wants them to understand why does it matter? that we hold fast to this unpopular belief that Jesus really did literally bodily rise from the dead. Why must we hold to that? Why can't we compromise that belief? Well, because Paul will tell us the resurrection of Jesus is not just a trivial piece of history. It's not just some event that happened in the world 2,000 years ago. It is everything to us. It is essential to us. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our faith, our Christianity, our lives are meaningless. Paul would agree with John Updike's words. Make no mistake, if he arose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's disillusion did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are all wasting your time this morning. So why does the resurrection matter? Let's prove this statement on the board. Why does the resurrection matter to you? Why is it not just a piece of history that's fascinating, that's interesting? Why does it matter to your life? Paul gives us three answers in 1 Corinthians 15. Three reasons why the resurrection of Jesus is essential to you, living 1,980 years after the event. First reason he gives in 1 Corinthians 15, why does it matter that Jesus rose from the dead? Because it's at the day, at the moment of his resurrection, that your sins became forgivable. His resurrection made forgiveness possible. Paul actually states it from the negative. From the negative, look at me at verse 17. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. 
Paul tells us if Jesus was not bodily, literally raised from the dead 2,000 years ago, then this whole Christianity thing is a colossal waste of time because our faith is, is vain. That means it's worthless. It's of no value. Your faith in Jesus is pointless if he didn't rise. Why? Well, because if he didn't rise, then no matter whether you believe in Jesus or not, it doesn't matter. You are still in your sins if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If the resurrection didn't happen, then forgiveness is not possible. You are still under God's wrath today if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There is no forgiveness without resurrection. Now, back in verse 3, we read verse 3 just a moment ago, Paul told us that Jesus died for our sins. We talked about that at length last week. Jesus went to the cross to pay the price for our sins, to redeem us, to set us free from sin. He purchased that redemption with his own blood. That's what the death of Jesus is about. He purchased your redemption with his blood. But... It is the resurrection that proves that his payment was accepted. That's what the resurrection is, is about. It is proof that Jesus' payment, his death for sin, was sufficient to pay the price of sin. Think about it this way. This afternoon, let's say you go to Target to buy a lot of stuff. You're going to buy all this stuff at Target. So when does the stuff actually begin to belong to you? Well, it's not when you put it in your cart. If you walk out of the store with the stuff in your cart, you're going to be arrested because it's not yours yet. So you got to go to the clerk and you go to the clerk and you put the stuff on the conveyor and the clerk scans the stuff. Well, it's still not yours yet. And you take your card and you run it through the machine, but it's still not yours yet. When does it begin to belong to you? When the receipt prints. When the receipt prints, because the receipt proves that the payment was sufficient and then the clerk hands you your stuff. Well, that's the resurrection. It is God the Father's receipt that the death of Jesus was sufficient to pay for our sins. If Jesus is still in the grave, if he did not rise, what that proves is that his death was not enough, that sin was greater than Jesus, and sin won. And you are still in your sins, and there is no hope for any of us if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That leads Paul to the conclusion of verse 18. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep, again, that is a euphemism for dying. Those who have died in Christ have perished. To perish is to die separated from God, to be hopelessly, utterly lost. Now, it's interesting to compare verse 18 to the most famous verse in your Bible, John 3.16. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What Paul wants you to understand is if Jesus did not rise bodily, literally from the dead 2,000 years ago, then that right there is a lie. John 3.16 is a pipe dream if Jesus didn't rise because you will perish. No matter your faith, you will perish in your sins because forgiveness is impossible without resurrection. Eternal life is a dream without resurrection. It's only resurrection that makes eternal life possible. Jesus rose from the dead to prove that the payment was sufficient. I had a friend in elementary school um, who somehow got hold of a bunch of old checks from his parents, blank checks. I think they got in like a new checkbook and uh, just didn't really adequately dispose of their old checkbook. And so he got these checks and we thought that was really cool because we're elementary kids and now we're thinking free money. We're, we're all rich. And so he starts writing us checks. He wrote one for me for a million bucks. And I was really excited about that because I'd never seen a number with that many zeros with my name on it. So I'm really excited about this million dollar check. Um, I thought I was rich, 
But I wasn't, was I? Well, no, because the value of a check is only as valuable as the money in the account. And his parents didn't have a million dollars in their account. That check was worth nothing. That check was just a worthless piece of paper. Well, Jesus' death on the cross was just as worthless if he didn't rise from the dead. He did not pay for your sins unless he rose. It's his resurrection that proves that the value of his death was sufficient to pay the price of sin. So Paul puts it this way in Romans 4.25. He says of Jesus, he was delivered over to death for our sins. He, he died for our sins in our place and was raised to life for our justification. Justification, that's when God declares a sinner to be right. That is forgiveness. When God forgives us of our sins and grants us eternal life, it is the resurrection that made justification possible. God can forgive you because Jesus' payment was sufficient. He rose from the dead to prove your sins can be forgiven. So thank God Jesus rose from the dead. Otherwise, we would be lost in sin. It is his resurrection that made forgiveness possible. That's the first reason that the resurrection of Jesus Christ matters to you. Second reason, Paul tells us, because Jesus rose, your death becomes temporary. The moment that Jesus rose from the dead, your death became temporary. That's, that's very significant. I was studying some statistics this week on fear of death. Lots of people fear death. That's pretty normal. Um, so I was reading some statistics from the uh, National Institute of Mental Health compiled just last year, 2012. They found that 68% of people who were surveyed reported having a strong fear of death. Now, what was a little bit funny to me is actually on the list, fear of death was second on the list. The top thing on the list with, with 74% of people saying they had a strong fear of it, can you guess what was the thing people were most afraid of? Glossophobia, speaking in public. I found that really funny. Here I am. Um, this is really not that bad. <laughs> Being up here on stage speaking in public, it's not like dying. I mean, it, it takes a little while to get used to, to get comfortable with, but it's not as bad as dying. I actually think that statistic for fear of death is way underreported because I have never spoken to anyone who was comfortable with the idea of death. It is natural, it is human to fear this thing called death. I love how Jack Kerouac put it, a writer here, from, here in America. He said, I am young now and can look upon my body and soul with pride, but it will be mangled soon and later it will begin to disintegrate and then I shall die and die conclusively. How can we face such a fact and not live in fear? That's right. When you look at death, if death is the end of you, if death is the end of your life, then it is reasonable to be afraid. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you won't rise from the dead. So death is the end of your story. And if that's all you get, if this life is it, then it is reasonable to be afraid of death. But Jesus did rise from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, so we will rise from the dead. Jesus defeated death so that we can defeat death. Jesus' death was temporary so that our death can be temporary. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have no need to fear death. Death is only temporary for us. Look with me, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says in verse 20, starting in verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. 
For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Paul is giving us great hope here. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection because he defeated death, so we will defeat death. He tells us that through the sin of Adam, Adam's choice in the garden to eat from the forbidden fruit, at that moment, death entered the human race. Because of Adam's sin, we will all die. But because of Christ's resurrection, those of us who are believers will live again. Jesus brings us eternal life, resurrection life. As he defeated death, so will we. Jesus' resurrection guarantees your resurrection. That's why it matters. Now, to understand that, we need to unpack that term a little bit. What does the word resurrection mean? What does it mean in the Bible when it says that you will be resurrected? What will it be like to be resurrected? What will your resurrected body be like? Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Leave your finger in 1 Corinthians 15 and turn to the right, just a few pages, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's learn a little bit about this idea of resurrection by talking about what happens the moment that you die. Someday you're going to die, and what is going to happen instantly after that? Look at me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 8. Paul says, for we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Paul says that the moment that you die, the instant a believer dies, he or she is immediately at home with the Lord. I love that phrase, at home with the Lord. The moment that you die, you are face to face with Jesus. You're you're awake, you are aware, you see him, you worship him, you celebrate him. You are at home with the Lord the moment that you die. But at that moment that you die, you are absent from the body. You are bodiless. You're at home with the Lord, but bodiless. Uh, God designed the body and the spirit to be together. But at the moment of death, they're separated. That's actually what death means biblically, separation. Death is the separation of your body from your spirit. Your body goes into the grave. Your spirit goes into the presence of Jesus. You're with Jesus in spirit, but you're bodiless. Look with me what Paul says in verses two through four. He says, for indeed in this house, and metaphor he's using for this body, in this body we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, our resurrection body, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, this body, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Here's what Paul is saying. He wants us to understand very clearly, death for us is better than life. The moment that you die, your situation improves because you're with Jesus. Sin is gone. Suffering is gone. Pain is gone. Death is an improvement over this life. To be at home with the Lord is an improvement. It is better than this current life, but it is not best because God didn't design you to be a bodiless spirit. God designed you to have a body. That's why Paul says, when you are at home with the Lord, your spirit at home worshiping Jesus, you're gonna feel a little bit like you're naked because you were meant to have a body. That's how God designed it. He did not design your spirit and body to be separated from one another. And so to be with Jesus in your spirit will be better than this life, but it will not be best because you were designed to have a body. And that deficiency is what God resolves in resurrection. It's what the resurrection is about. God rejoins your perfected body to your spirit so that forever you are body and spirit together, just as God designed you to be. 
Now, actually, Paul tells us a lot more about that resurrection body back in 1 Corinthians 15. So flip back there, 1 Corinthians 15. So when we die, the moment that we die, our spirit is at home with the Lord Jesus, but we're bodiless. We're waiting for that resurrection of our bodies that Paul talks about, starting in verse 42. Look at verse 42. Paul says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. What Paul is telling us is that at resurrection, we receive glorified bodies. We don't receive the same body back. Resurrection is not the reanimation of your current body. Resurrection is the reception of a brand new body. Newly created by God, a glorified body. Paul compares your current body to your new body in these verses. Your current body is weak. It is mortal. It perishes. It gets sick. It breaks down. It decays. Your new body will be immortal. It will be powerful. It will be perfect in every way. It's interesting to to look at at two events that happened actually within just a few weeks of each other. Uh, The resurrection of Jesus and shortly before it, the restoration of Lazarus. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Um, When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, I don't know if you ever thought about this, that was not resurrection, was it? No, because Lazarus just got his same body back. His same decaying, broken, weak, fallible body. Lazarus got sick, Lazarus felt pain, and then he died. Just like all of us. That's not resurrection. Resurrection is what happened to Jesus. He got a new body, a glorified body, a perfected body. Now, if you want to know what will your resurrected body be like, think about Jesus' body. What do we know about his body? Well, first of all, his resurrection body was a real body. He was not a ghost. He was not a phantom. He had real flesh and blood and bones. So will you. You will have a resurrected body with real functioning organs and body and skin and nerves. You will have a normal body, a real body, and it will function. It's interesting. Shortly after Jesus arrived and and revealed himself to his disciples after his resurrection, one of the first things he asked his disciples was, do you have any food to eat? Very interesting. In his resurrection body, it was still a functioning body he wanted to eat. I'm happy about that. I like to eat. For eternity, I'm going to be eating, but never getting fat because my body will be perfected. Your resurrection body will function. We don't know all the details. Everybody asks, I don't know any of the details. I don't know how it works. But it's a real body that really functions, but is immortal. It is immortal. You will never get sick. You will never feel pain. You will never suffer and you will never die. Your resurrection body will be perfected. It will be powerful, Paul says. Jesus did some crazy stuff after he rose from the dead. Apparently so will you. It's a powerful body, but it will still be you. That's the great thing about the resurrection body. It's new, it's glorified, it's perfect, but it's still you. Jesus' disciples saw him and knew, hey, that's Jesus. They didn't have to look for a name tag. They knew it's him. When you are resurrected, it will be you. We will see you. You will look at me and say, hey, there's Blake. It will be me, but in a perfected, glorified body. That's the great news about resurrection. For us who believe in Jesus Christ, death is not the end of our story. Death does not defeat us. Our death is just temporary. It is just temporary. Paul draws a huge conclusion from that. Look at verse 54. One of the most beautiful passages in scripture. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You will beat death. Death will only be a minor temporary inconvenience for you. Jesus rose from the dead, so will you. That's why throughout this chapter, you may have noticed, Paul keeps referring to the death of believers as sleep. It's a euphemism he used often throughout the New Testament. Why? Well, because just like sleep for us, death will be temporary. It will be very short-lived. It won't last any time at all. You will die, and an instant later, you will awake to a new and unending dawn. Your spirit will instantly be in the presence of Jesus Christ. A major improvement over this life, but it will just get better when God resurrects your body, recreates a new and perfected body, and you worship and enjoy God for eternity. That's the hope of resurrection, the hope we have because Jesus rose from the dead. I love how Benjamin Franklin put it. He wrote his own epitaph for his tomb. He put it this way. The body of B. Franklin, printer like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here, food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. That's resurrection right there. You're coming back. You're coming back in a new, perfected, corrected, improved, and glorified edition that you will enjoy for all eternity. Death is not the end of our story. It's just temporary for us, just a minor inconvenience for us. We need not fear death, for we will live again. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. That's the second reason it matters. Third reason why it matters that Jesus really did rise from the dead 2,000 years ago was because at the moment of his resurrection, your life became meaningful. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives meaning, significance to your life, to this life. Paul actually states it from the negative. He talks about the meaning of life if Jesus did not rise. Look with me at verse 19. Paul says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And then verse 32. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to make a lot of sacrifices in life. There's a lot of pleasures in this world that you have to do without. There's a sinful pleasures. You just have to say no to those all the time. And then there's legitimate pleasures that we're called to sacrifice in service to God and one another. The life of, of a Christ follower is a life of sacrifice. What Paul wants us to understand in no uncertain terms, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then you will not rise from the dead. And as a result, all of your noble sacrifice is a waste, a complete waste, because one day you're going to die and then everyone else is going to die and then no one will care whether you lived a selfless life or not. Who cares whether you lived an obedient life if there's no life after this one? If there is no resurrection, there is no reason to live the Christian life. That's why Paul concludes, if there's no resurrection, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are to be pitied more than all men because we give up this life. What a foolish, stupid thing to do if this is the only life you get. If this is it, then don't sacrifice it. 
Well, we would be much better served living by the model that Paul quotes, the Epicurean motto, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Or as Forbes put it, the guy who, who wrote Forbes magazine, he who dies with the most toys wins. Yeah, if there's no resurrection, yes, he does. Because this is all you got, and he got as much as he could. If there is no resurrection, then all the sacrifice, all the obedience, all the selflessness, all the love that you toil to show is meaningless. If Jesus didn't rise. But he did. 1980 years ago, Jesus rose from the dead. And that is what gives meaning to your life. That's what makes your sacrifice worthwhile. Jesus rose from the dead so that you will rise from the dead. This life is not all you get. In fact, because you get eternity after this life, this life is actually really short compared to that. This life is is a vapor compared to that. So it is reasonable, it is right to sacrifice this vapor for reward in eternity. That's what Paul's saying. If Jesus rose from the dead, you'll rise from the dead. And that gives meaning. It makes your sacrifices meaningful, reasonable. A selfless life is reasonable if this is not the only life. That's what leads Paul to the conclusion of the chapter. Look at the last verse. He says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. I love how that verse ends. Your toil for Jesus Christ, your suffering, your obedience, the difficult path of following Jesus, it is not in vain. Your toil is not a waste. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. So will you. You will be with him forever. Your service to him now, your sacrificial selfless service is right because you will be with him face to face for all eternity, enjoying the reward of the small sacrifices you make in this life. So why does the resurrection matter? The resurrection of God's son, Jesus Christ, 1980 years ago, why does it matter to you today? Three reasons. Because that's what made your sins forgivable because that's what made your death temporary, and because that's what made your life meaningful. Now, some of you here this morning are just checking out Christianity. You're new to the whole Jesus thing. You're new to Christianity. You're still thinking through Christianity. What does it have to offer you? Let me make it as clear and simple as I can. All the things on the board right there, all three of those things, pretty good things, right? things you'd really like to have, forgiveness for your sins and and life after death and, and meaningfulness, significance in this life. All of those things are yours as a free gift. All you have to do is simply receive it in faith. That's the good news of Christianity. You don't have to work for any of that stuff. You don't have to earn it. Jesus already did. He died. He rose. You don't have to. He earned it for you to offer it to you as an absolutely free gift. All you have to do is believe. John 3.16 isn't a lie. It's real. Just believe and you will not perish. You will have eternal life. You will enjoy a resurrected body in the presence of Jesus Christ forever if you believe. Just believe that God's son really did die for your sins and rise from the dead 2,000 years ago. That's the good news of the gospel. And for those of us who have believed that good news, I leave you with a very simple question. You believe in the resurrection, but what does the resurrection mean for you? What is the relevance of it to you? What does it matter to you? Is the resurrection just an interesting piece of historical trivia to you? 
Is it just a story that you tell your kids this time of year? Or do you see it? Do you see Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that the resurrection isn't just a piece of history, it is everything to us. It is the foundation of our future and the basis of all of our hope. It is the only thing that makes life meaningful. Thank God for the resurrection. Let's go to him in thanks. Heavenly Father, we praise you and celebrate this morning that you are stronger than death. We celebrate and give glory to you that death could not hold your son down. That three days after dying as our sacrifice, he rose victorious from the grave. He defeated sin and death and Satan on our behalf. Thank you for that, God. Thank you that in this universe there is nothing as powerful as you. You defeated death, proving that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to pay for our sins. Thank you that he has made forgiveness possible. You raised Jesus from the dead, showing that death is nothing to fear. It is just a temporary inconvenience that lasts but a moment. And then we will be with you forever. Thank you for taking away the fear of death through the resurrection of Jesus. And thank you for making this life meaningful. Thank you that there is significance in this life. It matters when we sacrifice. It matters when we serve. It matters when we love and obey because this life is not all we get. This life is but a vapor compared to the eternity we will spend with you because your son rose from the dead. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We don't deserve any of this from you. Thank you that you give it as a free gift. Forgiveness, eternal life, significance, it's all a free gift. Thank you, God that in grace you have given us all of this. Pray for anyone here to whom that is new information. I pray that they would believe. I pray that today they would receive those beautiful gifts that Jesus has provided by rising from the dead. Thank you for this Easter Sunday. I pray that we would live lives of gratefulness to your son. In his risen and glorious name we pray, amen. Happy Easter. God bless you guys. Have a great week.